We've talked about how philosophy contributes to truth machines. We haven't talked about how philosophy contributes to religion, or how religion contributes to a truth machine. Today we will. Ready? You've discovered the Pamology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pamology Society's founder, James Carvin. If a religion is true, we may already have a truth machine. But if the world's religions are mutually contradictory, which truth machine should we use? Maybe the best way to jump into the subject is by responding to a comment from one of our Christian listeners whose personal set of beliefs didn't jibe with the idea of a multiverse. Our Pimology 101 course will explain why Pimologists conclude that a multiverse is true. She had completed the course, but found the idea of a multiverse to be incompatible with her faith. Go ahead and take Pimology 101, it's free, and you may just earn a top hat like she did. Let me know what you think. I'll go ahead and read her post in full. She says, A pomologist believes in multiple universes. What would a pomologist say about Genesis chapter 2 in the Holy Bible? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. She says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. The Holy Bible doesn't seem to indicate that God went on to keep perpetually creating more heavens one after another with other life forms and each with its own laws of physics because he's a creative being and he can. Granted, God still creates. He makes new stars in our galaxy be born and others die out. He joins male and female cells to create new embryos, she says, be they animal or human. He makes new plants sprout in the springtime. I could go on, she says, but the bulk of his work seems to have been completed in six days, whether you believe that to be calendar days, millennia, or something else. And then on the seventh day, he rested. You are going to have to at some point address that. Also, the accounts and theories of creation in other world religions, she says, to make sure that Pimalogy is not trying to dismantle all organized religion. So I'll stop there. I responded to her in a private group, but I have her permission to review that response publicly and repeat some of the points that I shared there. For some background, this listener and I actually met in a church a number of decades ago and became close friends. We've discussed hard questions through the years, and even though she's more of a biblical literalist than I am, she knew me well enough to be interested in the course. She's right about my need to address what seems to be conflicting viewpoints on theories of creation among the world's religions, as well as other matters of faith. So I wrote back to her with a following reply. This is a great question. Thank you for asking it. You're touching on a subject that involves thoughts that I've had for many years as a person who's had a lot of postgraduate study in theology. Philosophy, theology, and faith have always had a close relationship, whether it's a Christian tradition or another. Pope John Paul II had a Ph.D. in phenomenology, yet he was a man of very great faith. I haven't yet touched much on phenomenology in my podcast, but it relates to this question, and I'll be covering it in later episodes. Phenomenology asks how we perceive things. It asks what consciousness and direct experience is. As you know, biblical literalism has always been a mystery to me, something I could never be sure about. The science of biblical interpretation is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics was perhaps my favorite course in seminary, and it left me with a certain openness to critical approaches to interpreting the scriptures. 
you're going to find as you listen to my podcast that I'm placing various ideas into categories. Certainty is usually restricted to the a priori knowledge of logical necessity. A priori means that the knowledge is not based on observation and experience. There's a certain antagonism religion sometimes has with philosophy, but not all of philosophy. Pimology is a philosophical, not a religious system. But there's also something called Christian philosophy. The two fields are not necessarily incompatible. Justin of Caesarea is probably the first prominent Christian philosopher that history preserved. The school of Alexandria produced Pantinus, but his work's gone. We only know him as Clement of Alexandria's predecessor as head of the school of Alexandria. Origen succeeded Clement there and is known best for his allegorical interpretations of scripture, but he also used philosophical concepts in blending reason with faith, as the Christians of Beria were known to have done. Clement not only was a Christian philosopher, but credited Greek philosophy with preparing the Gentiles. He compared it with the way the scriptures prepared the Jews for the coming of Jesus. Even prior to Clement was Athenagoras, a Christian apologist who used philosophical arguments with the philosophers of his day to defend the resurrection. Then there was Dionysius of the Areopagus, who left us a great work on the incomprehensibility of God that became the basis for Christian mystical contemplation. It's used to this day by Jews and other non-Christians as well. Among the Greek Orthodox, perhaps the work of Apostolos Makrakis is the best modern example of Christian philosophy. In the Middle Ages and the West, the work of Thomas Aquinas is largely philosophical, and in the East, we have the philosophical approach of Gregory Palamas. The anti-intellectualist idea that the wisdom of this world is foolish and faith like a child is needed to enter the kingdom of heaven is a very common criticism that I should address here too. As I see it, Christian philosophy is not the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world says things like, live it up, because tomorrow we die. There's no such thing as an afterlife to worry about, and nobody's watching. The wisdom of this world isn't making theological statements. It doesn't say things like, perfection is necessarily triune, since it includes both what it is in its doing and what it does in its being lest either its doing or being be other than perfection, and its doing includes what it is as doer, what it is as what is done, and what it is in doing. Logic is saying this, but it isn't disharmonious with Christian tradition. If anything, it's a Christian apologetic to those monotheists who fail to grasp the possibility of the Christian trinity. This is not to say that the rejection of the Trinity on the basis of monotheistic ideas about perfection, acknowledging there can only be one perfection, is worldly wisdom either. Worldly wisdom is about worldliness, which is to say the denial of God altogether. It's the wisdom of this world. Acknowledging that God must be one is a major step in the right direction, and that direction is a primarily philosophical one. Irenaeus and the early Christian apologists all argued for the oneness of God, not primarily based on scripture, but using philosophical logic against various heresies and Greek philosophies. The result was a Christian philosophical tradition that became the basis for the theology behind the Christian creeds. If people hadn't been asking questions about who Jesus was, there'd be no Apostles' Creed. To Christians, they used scriptures. To other people, they didn't. It would have made little sense to try to persuade Gentiles with texts that they wouldn't have seen as possessing any authority. The best Gentile thought at the time was Greek philosophy. Discussion of it in explaining who Jesus was was inevitable, and the Gentiles didn't know anything about the Bible. 
For the same reason, in Pimelogy, you won't see me using the scriptures much either. It's because I'm addressing a very wide variety of people, not just Christians. Keep all this in mind when you see religious anti-intellectualism. Now, I'll readily admit, and also complain, that sometimes academic subjects can get so detailed and so tedious and hard to understand that they become sort of useless. But the wisdom of this world is not philosophy as a whole. You shouldn't reject philosophy as if it was a competitor to the Holy Bible. Philo means love. Sophia means wisdom. Philosophia is nothing more than the love of wisdom. Christian wisdom is part of the whole body of wisdom that some philosophers happen to love. Even non-Christian philosophers learn from it. Other religions have their own traditions full of sages as well. The experience of elders is a vital part of the whole. Like the first deacon, Stephen, they're chosen to lead because of their God-given wisdom. The expression, faith like a child, is misused by anti-intellectualists too. Faith like a child isn't a rejection of systematic theology or Christian philosophy in favor of simplicity. It's an encouragement to trust and depend on God the way that a child trusts and depends on their parents. There is some unknowing in that trust, but if a child is trained in the way they should go, having trusted their parents, they won't think like the world does. They'll think godly thoughts, maybe even developing Christian philosophical systems. So in short, when people of faith attack philosophy, they shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now let me move on to another dimension in all of this. In founding Pimology, I deliberately separated my own faith from its foundational logic so that I would identify it as a philosophical system rather than a religion. And in doing that, I realized that as a result, we could speak of Christian Pimology, Catholic Pimology, Evangelical Pimology, Jewish Pimology, Muslim Pimology, Atheist Pimology, Buddhist pomology, and so on, as people with faith perspectives different than my own embraced its philosophical tenets. I wanted to be that way because I wanted to communicate common concepts in logic with people of every background. Each tradition can apply the system to what they already believe as part of a coherent view of life and its purposes. Maybe it was the entrepreneur in me. I knew that if I created a one-size-fits-all philosophical system, it would get a lot more mileage in the long run. Separating tradition from logic was an important move, I think. Now, from a Christian evangelical perspective, you might want to compare this with Paul in Athens. If your calling is to preach the gospel to the whole world, then why do evangelists only communicate with those with a Christian background? To get to the writer's point, though, she was concerned about some passages relating to the multiverse, seeing it as a done deal. I don't think that the Christian scriptures are incompatible with the idea of a multiverse at all. So I went on and I told her, When I see Jesus as Alpha and Omega, I hear him saying he is the done deal. All the heavenly timelines add nothing to what he already is as God. So when God creates man as his final work, after all the heavens and the earth have been made, he sees Adam as a type of himself, the new Adam. He creates the first Adam, but in the completed work, he also creates the new Adam. When God and man are united in the incarnation, eternity meets temporality. And that's how Genesis is fulfilled in the past tense. Anything that can happen in time, anything good in it, is always included in him, including time itself. If it were otherwise, then some good thing would have to be excluded from the goodness of God. If God is perfect, if he's maximized awesomeness, 
Since maximized awesomeness, or perfection, lacks no good thing, that would be a contradiction. As a foundationist philosopher, I'd have to say that contradiction, the contradiction of eternity meeting temporality in the Incarnation, is illogical. Perfection can't lack any good thing. There can be no lack in it of a good thing. Nevertheless, there is an exception that also stems from logical necessity, namely, that which contains all that could possibly be good can only not contain all that could possibly be good in what it contains already as that which knows all unknowing. <laughs> well, that probably sounds confusing as I'll get out, so let me put this another way. Unknowing things, think about this, not knowing things, unknowing things, not knowing stuff, which is sort of the opposite of a divine attribute that we all call omniscience, has certain good qualities. So, for example, if I give you a surprise party, that could be a good thing. But for it to work, you'd have to not know about the party beforehand. You could probably think of hundreds of examples that are like this. Discovering things over time is part of experience, and learning things individually or as groups can be something wonderful. But it requires unknowing for it to exist. Good humor is another example. It's all about timing. So here's the contradiction. If it's a good thing, then God has the attribute. But if it means God has to not know something, then how can God be omniscient? How can God know all things if God doesn't know what it's like to discover something? But actually, it's not a contradiction at all. And the reason is actually pretty simple. In order to know all things, it's necessary to possess the knowledge of not knowing things. If the knowledge of not knowing things is not included in omniscience, then omniscience can't be omniscience. Therefore, omniscience includes not just the knowledge of all things, but also the not knowing of all things. The paradox is maybe easier to understand if we use an analogy. So let's suppose that you have a body part like a hand. The hand doesn't need to experience what the foot experiences in order to be a hand. The hand and the foot can share their different experiences through the brain. The brain knows the unknowing of the foot with respect to the hand and the unknowing of the hand with respect to the foot. It then adds up the info to know both the unknowing of the hand and the foot as well as their knowing, so both the hand and the foot are part of a single organism, and by unknowing things, the organism is able to know more as it distinguishes between what it learns from the sensations of the foot and from the sensations of the hand. The result is something philosophers refer to as combined consciousness. I'll touch on concepts of consciousness like panpsychism and cosmopsychism, various theories commonly discussed among philosophers regarding the mind in later blogcasts. Here, I just want to offer that the divine mind necessarily combines consciousness. If we understand God to be perfection, we can say with certainty that it happens because of the definition of perfection, which lacks no good thing, including all the good things involved in not knowing. The solution is combined consciousness. The brain, knowing what the hand and the foot know, is not a perfect analogy. God's not an organism. But the point is that unknowing things is an important part of knowledge. For knowledge to be complete, it's necessary to unknow all things as well as know them. Human organisms do this to some extent. So why should we, because we see a contradiction, limit God's ability to do something similar, but in a much greater way? 
Christmas is coming, so it's a good time to talk about the incarnation of the Son of God as Jesus. One reason the incarnation of God as man is so difficult for many people to grasp is that we have trouble understanding how God, being omniscient and omnipotent and such, could become less than what he is. If Jesus was God becoming man, then as contradictory as that idea may seem to non-Christians, it's not inconsistent with the idea of knowing all things through unknowing. As for omnipotence, being all-powerful would mean having the power to be impotent, like a baby in a manger. No omnipotence is complete without that power too. Omnipotence has the power to be multiple things, not just one thing. And yet, omnipotence also has the power to include all forms of power, limited or unlimited, in itself and what it is. Now that is powerful. So I continue to write, this is the mystery both of the incarnation, in which that which is the fullness of deity becomes less than what it is, abandoning its former estate, forsaking not the world. The incarnation presents many ironies. The contradiction is defeated by an included lessness in its abundance. Yet the contradiction remains. That which contains all that could be good, perfection, cannot have anything good added to what it is or what it does. So in this way, as God, Christ can say that he is the Alpha and the Omega. But in saying so, he refers to the end of time, not just the beginning. He's not saying just that he will be there at the end of time. He's saying he's already at the end of time because time is included in himself. The sense of completeness you see in Genesis, seen in that light, presents no obstacle to a later unfolding of the heavens through time. Your question acknowledges that God continues to create things like stars after the six-day creation. But what I'm saying to you is that Genesis includes the later creation of those stars as well. When God creates, he sees the entire future, and specifically that future which is very good, as it says especially the completed work of Jesus as the new Adam. With that work, which is perfect in his mind, he's ready to rest on the seventh day. So that's what I wrote to her. Now, there were a few juicy thoughts in there worth hitting the rewind button for, but I wanted to share this with you, not just because it's Christmas time and my Christian listeners might appreciate that, but because if what you've been looking for in pomology is to find something that doesn't match your faith, if you've been sort of testing it, you're missing the point. Pomology is not a religion. It's philosophy. If you're a religious person, it doesn't dismantle any religions. All it does is provide the lens of logic. And when it comes to the multiverse, it bases that view not on faith, but on the logic of maximized awesomeness. I haven't fully covered the maximization of awesomeness yet in my blogcast series, but now that I've provided a defense for two big Christian ideas for Christmas, the Trinity and the Incarnation, based on foundational logic, let me offer something to my non-Christian followers. As true as it is that perfection, as the maximization of awesomeness, may be necessarily triune and include that which is less than what it is in itself, there's nothing in foundational logic that requires Jesus to be the Son of God. A priori logic has its limits. It's like a lens on an eye. It helps with vision. It doesn't necessarily tell you everything you may want to know all by itself. Belief in Jesus is a coherentist assumption that's based on faith. It amounts to a comprehensive doctrine or a dogma. It might be backed up by evidence from prophecy found in the Tanakh, 
It might be supported by some historical data, if it's reliable, but to settle such matters requires the use of a truth machine. If your truth machine excludes the Bible and replaces it with the Quran, Jesus won't claim to be the Alpha and the Omega anymore. Jesus will become a respected historical prophet who actually pointed to Muhammad. I'd love to hear from my Muslim readers and listeners as to their view of the multiverse. I don't think the Quran necessarily excludes it. In saying there are seven heavens, it isn't saying there aren't more. Am I right? The truth machine that Pimalogists will refer to is not the Bible or the Quran or any other set of scriptures or religious systems or traditions. It will be the counterchecker or some even better machine that somebody else creates besides the counterchecker through which those with conflicting ideas can sort out their differences. Thus, if Christians want to debate with Muslims, the machine will be ideally suited for that. Political and religious views have in common that they both involve comprehensive doctrines. The counterchecker tabulates foundational logic in one category and empirical evidence in another because it's designed as a knowledge-gathering machine. It's not a faith machine. It may or may not enhance your comprehensive worldview and support your doctrines. I don't know. Now, while we're sorting things out here, I should also be clear that the counterchecker is not pomology and pomology is not the counterchecker. The counterchecker is a truth machine designed by the founder of Pamology, me, based on epistemological concepts. The defense of Pamological concepts is another matter. If you disagree with any of the foundational concepts, these ideas can be hashed out in the truth machine as well. As an example, in my last blogcast, I asserted that time appeared to be subject to consciousness rather than consciousness to time. I stated that this could be proven probabilistically. That is, if time is infinite, but your particular consciousness exists now, then it's infinitely more probable that your consciousness is dictating what time it is than it is that time is dictating whether or not it is time for you to be conscious. This is a thought that has some bearing on religious notions of eternity. Any religion that holds that either the past or the future is eternal and infinite needs to recognize that in relation to an infinite amount of time, a very finite lifespan occurring in any point in time is literally next to impossible. The only evidence a person has that those odds have been defeated is the experience of being alive. While that's good evidence, if there are multiple ways that evidence could exist or have come to be, then the most probable way for that evidence to exist is the best explanation. What we call probabilistic abduction seems to dictate that this evidence, your conscious experience as existing now, is infinitely more likely the result of time being subject to the conscious experience rather than the conscious experience being dependent on the time to pass until it comes to be. Consciousness seems to have a way of bypassing timelines to experience moments in time. It's foundational logic. While defeating infinite odds is not entirely impossible, it's literally most likely that it hasn't happened. This is one of the differences between a foundationist and a coherentist. A coherentist will often base their belief on what they see and experience. Experience is the foundation of their comprehensive set of beliefs. It's all the proof that they need. A coherentist would rather believe they've defeated infinite odds than believe that time is subject to consciousness. They'll insist that such a belief is merely a theory. 
They'll ask for proof, even though they already have it in terms of probabilistic abduction. The improbability of time dictating when consciousness can occur, rather than consciousness dictating when time occurs, bears on religious viewpoints and becomes the lens of pomology. It tends to support Asian religious concepts like Buddhism and Hinduism more than Judeo-Christian and Islamic ones. A Hindu supposes they're always alive, so the odds of them experiencing something consciously is 100% in one form or another, at all times, as their soul migrates. Do you see how the math works? But a pomologist isn't necessarily a Hindu or a Buddhist. There are other matters of faith to check with the lens of pomology as well. Today, we talked about Jesus, who most Christians suppose is the incarnation of God as Savior. Salvation in Hinduism and Buddhism is very different than it is in Christianity, Judaism, or Islam. Since pomology is about the maximization of awesomeness, let's talk about how salvation fits into the maximization of awesomeness. Next time, we'll open that door. As I've said before, foundationism can actually tell us more than its critics realize. I think you'll get a lot out of these comparisons. First, we'll look at different concepts of salvation. Then we'll consider which concepts seem better and why. We need to take our time with this, so I'll break the discussion up into parts. After just a few more blogcasts, I'll have shown you why the maximization of awesomeness is not just a fanciful hope, but the very reason for our consciousness. You'll have discovered the purpose of life. Cool, huh? Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's if true. It would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.